When it comes to self-development, no matter the method you use, the vital point is to practice. If you're ready to transform your life and claim the potential inside of you, then you're in the right place. Welcome back to the Vital Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Schechter. As a transformation coach and breathwork facilitator, I'm invested in making the dynamic landscape of personal evolution accessible. My goal is to inspire you to take action for yourself. You have the capacity to evolve and bring your intentions and dreams into the world, and there's never been more access to so many incredible modalities that can help you on your journey. This podcast will help you learn simple methods you can use to transform your life and share the stories of practitioners who are doing the work so that you feel inspired to go and practice, because that's the vital point. My guest on this episode is Jonathan Waller, who's an archetypal astrologer, poet, and writer. He was inspired in equal parts by Carl Jung, Stanislav Grof, and astrologer Richard Tarnas. And he uses astrology as a therapeutic and creative tool to aid, guide, and help people on their paths towards wholeness through one-on-one coaching and group work. He's also a vocal advocate for psychedelic therapy and holotropic breathwork, and uses archetypal astrology as a tool to help people prepare for and integrate experiences of expanded states of consciousness. And this is an episode where I got more than maybe I thought I was going to going in. I had a growing curiosity about astrology as it relates to uh, the breathwork for transformation sessions that I run and certain things that have happened in my own life that seem like they've aligned with Uh, solstices and full moons and other astrological events. And so I connected with Jonathan and asked if I could, uh, you know, interview him and learn more about archetypal astrology. And it became very clear to me, especially as I went back to edit this episode, that not only did I not really understand what archetypal astrology was going in, I actually had some misconceptions and was maybe mixing it up with some other uh, types of astrology. And so it truly was a nice uh, sort of change of pace to, uh, you know, kind of sit back and really try to listen and absorb and learn, trying to understand. uh, Like I said, there was definitely some misconceptions that I noticed, especially as I went back to do the editing. The explanation is really what we start off with and kind of go through during the first part of the episode. Then we get into a really beautiful conversation about one of the most important aspects about working with expanded states of consciousness, which is surrender. You know, just really opening to whatever's coming up, even if what's coming up isn't beautiful and pleasant, you know, it's not all euphoric. Uh, Sometimes this work can be very challenging. It can bring up, you know, deep stuff and being able to sit with that, to allow it to move through you is a very important part. And I really appreciated the perspective and words that Jonathan shared around this. And I really felt that it was clear to me that Jonathan was speaking from his own experience 
with breathwork, with psychedelics, as far as what he had to contribute to the conversation. Um, you know, since then, I've been really pleased to continue getting to know him. Uh, he's been coming to my breathwork sessions. He did a reading for me. And so I'm continuing to explore the archetypal astrology and uh, what that means to me and digesting it in terms of integration. And speaking of breathwork, if you're interested in deepening your own practice, I have my breathwork for transformation sessions online. Uh, there's two sessions that are open to anyone uh, twice a month on the second and fourth Sunday of the month. Those are $30 each session or for $45 a month. There are those two open sessions plus a third full moon session that's only for subscribers and a weekly integrative breathwork session that's a combination of breathwork and peer integration support. So all that for $45 a month. It's a great value and it's just a wonderful thing for me as a facilitator to see this community uh, continuing to grow and flourish and watching people really taking their breathwork seriously, um, integrating it into their process for development and transformation and exploration and really treating it as a practice because that's when breathwork became truly transformative to me is when I began practicing it on a regular basis and really started paying more attention to the integration process. So if you're interested in joining uh, either of those, go to beacons.ai backslash blue magic alchemy. And I'll link that in the show page. Again, that's beacons.ai backslash blue magic alchemy. And now without further ado, my conversation with Jonathan Waller. <laughs> so I'm really excited to have Jonathan on the show. Um, we connected over a curiosity of mine in which Jonathan is um, much more educated, has a lot of information. And I was, I was really curious to hear more about this area of expertise of his archetypal astrology. And my curiosity, if, if I wanted to sort of like peel back the layers of the onion, um, first, the first layer would be doing the breathwork for transformation sessions on the full moon, which again was like, I wonder if this would be cool to do on the full moon. And then as I started to have the sessions, the participants were like, wow, that was a really powerful session. What, what the heck just happened there? And I realized, okay, I was onto something. And then if I wanted to peel the layer back a little bit more, it would be reflecting on since I've started my healing journey, just noticing that a lot of significant events seem to align with full moons, with solstices, with these different astrological occurrences. And myself as a complete novice, just starting to chalk it up to coincidence, coincidence, coincidence. And then at some point, there's a lot here for it to be a coincidence. I think that's a good place to dive in is what exactly is 
archetypal astrology could you give us a brief overview of it in like simplest terms because i'm i really do need those simple terms as well at this point yeah sure <laughs> um so you know archetypal astrology is i guess set apart from other types of astrology in in a few ways the primary focus of it uh is on the the, the sun moon and planets of our solar system as archetypal astrologers we we pay a lot less attention to uh, signs of the zodiac, houses, fixed stars, asteroids, lots of other data points, which for sure, um, from an astrological perspective, hold some interest. But in archetypal astrology, they're, they're all taken as kind of secondary uh, symbol sets that are of a secondary kind of significance, less, less potent and, and less interesting uh, to us as astrologers. Uh, still valid. You know, that, that kind of helps to simplify the equation uh, in terms of when we're looking for significances, um, you know, correlations between, you know, say planetary dynamics or, or cosmic activity in general, correlations between that and, and our own experience. When we have a lot of different overlapping symbol sets and, and symbol systems, um, it can it can become quite easy to to find whatever significance we're looking for, you know, to just kind of have a theory, have an idea, uh, and then kind of project it into the astrological charts. And if you have a lot of different symbols to work with that all overlap and, and mutually inflect each other, um, at a certain point, it gets to the point where you can find just about anything you want to find. So right. by limiting the focus, just the planets in the solar system, we hope to uh, ameliorate some of that confusion and the kind of propensity for projection that we all have. Archetypal astrologers are certainly not uh, immune to psychological projection. What we primarily study is the kind of the geometric relationships between the different planets in the solar system from the Earth's perspective. So there are certain angles when you plot the different planets on the on the chart which is represented as a circle um, there are certain angles that seem to be of particular importance so when things are conjunct in the sky so that's kind of a zero degree angle uh, when things are opposite in the sky so that's kind of a 180 degree angle or when things are uh, at the 90 degree and 270 degree points so kind of forming a square on the on the circular depiction of the zodiac um and then when things are at 120 or 60 degrees so that's kind of forming triangles um uh on on the on the circular chart you know research has has shown that the, these particular uh angles when the when the planets make these particular angles on the chart um the the archetypal forces that are correlated with those planets seem to come to the forefront of the psyche and combine um, in particular ways so you know in a, in a word that's what the what the study of archetypal astrology is 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 understanding the archetypes that seem to be associated with the planets uh, and then understanding you know in some depth um, the way in which they combine how's that yeah no i'm uh, i'm glad that you brought in the projection 
Cause I think that that was where I was at before some of these things started happening was like, well, this can't, this is just people projecting what they want to see based on having a lot of different data points and a lot of different, like a big field of ambiguity to pick mm. from. That's what I would have said. I like that you brought in, you mentioned the research because that was, that was a big turning point for me was discovering that Stan Groff, who I hold in very high regard, had spent years, you know, and, and written these papers saying, no, no, this is like, this is real stuff. And you could kind of plan your psychedelic journeys or your breathwork when, when you're going into these expanded states, you should, you should be paying attention to these mm. things. And that was what really sparked my curiosity for more yeah. <laughs> and really connected us, you know, I was like, Oh wait. And it was, and it, it was a good synchronicity. I think it was like right around the time where I was like, okay, I have this very surface level understanding of all this and I'd like to learn more. And then uh, somehow your, your profile popped up on Facebook and I was like, okay, well, what a great opportunity I have for the, for the podcast to, you know, I could sit here and try to study a bunch of papers and, you know, a bunch of things and try to digest it myself and then share it with my audience. Or I could just go more to the source and, you know, talk with somebody that, and learn from them and just be curious about it. So yeah, I'm really excited about that. And um, I'd love to hear more about, cause I know more about Stan Groff than, Richard mm -hmm. Tarnas is the other, the other person that's really involved yeah. in this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I just want to express some gratitude for your curiosity. And, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure your listenership is uh, more open-minded than the average uh, pool of people when it comes to things like this. And I'm sure there's probably a few people uh, who still harbor a lot of skepticism about astrology and, you know, welcome that. And, you know, that's okay. And, uh, hopefully I can say some things that, that are at least intriguing um, and interesting and, and, and we'll see how we get on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just on, on that note as well, before diving into Tarnas and Groff, um, we want to also say that, um, you know, kind of without getting too heady and metaphysical about it, um, it's kind of important to mention that in archetypal astrology, the, the, the claim is, is really not that the planets cause things to happen. Um, you know, it's not, there's no, there's no claim here that, um, the planets emit some kind of force, uh, that we don't know how to detect, uh, that's kind of affecting us on a physiological level, um, and forcing things to happen. You know, it's, it's more that um, it's building on Jung's concept of synchronicity, you know, an a-causal uh, connecting principle. Um, so the idea that things uh, can be connected, meaningfully correlated in terms of, in terms of their meaning, um, you know, without being linked by a kind of deterministic chain of cause and effect. So the, the suggestion is that that we, as well as the planets, uh, as well as everything in the universe, kind of co-participate 
uh, in this synchronistic field of meaning. And that if that's the case, uh, we would expect there to be, um, like you say, a lot of coincidences, um, a lot of synchronicities or meaningful coincidences. Uh, so yeah, it's just worth saying that we're not, we're not suggesting a kind of uh, determinism or a kind of fatalistic um, subservience to the archetypes, you know, right. it's a, it's a field that, that we mutually participate in and, and what we do uh, with our free will, however much of it we have, um, you know, it matters um, and, it, and it is, is of consequence. Yeah. Uh, so just to, just to mention that. Um, is it is it somewhat of like um i guess what what's coming to mind as you're saying that is like some something like the butterfly effect like where there are you know i i think of the butterfly effect and i think of the way that the moon which is our closest body to us right affects the tides you can measure the how the tides are changing um by this body that's what hundreds of thousands of miles away from mm. us, but there it's exerting some sort of force. Um, there's a field that's impacting us there. And within like the psychedelic space, for instance, um, and, and I guess within the meditation space as well, um, I, I've had experiences where I can experience how like the ikaros that the facilitators are singing or the prayer wheel that I'm spinning that's that's generating that that sort of intention of love mm -hmm. and healing into the room into the space how that's affecting the energy in that in that contained space and so to me that's how I'm understanding it and I love I would love it if you correct me if I'm wrong here um, but that there's almost like a, these are similar types of sort of pulls or influences, but just on a much more massive scale, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, how I like to think about it, um, you know, if we think of the, the kind of field of meaning in the universe as a, as a, a symphony, say, um, then mm. it's, it's as though when the planets are interacting with each other, they, they give each other impetus energy that brings them into the foreground of psychic psychological activity. And they, they mutually as the uh, kind of archetypal energy comes into the foreground of the, of the, you know, cosmic symphony, um, the, the archetypes, uh, they interpenetrate, they overlap, they mutually inflect each other in, in various different ways. And there's almost, you know, that the ways in which they mutually inflect are, are extremely varied, uh, yet very much identifiable in terms of their archetypal character and characteristic, you know, the, just on the moon, you know, the moon definitely affects us on a physiological level. It's pretty much right. the only planet that the, the sun and moon are pretty much the only planetary bodies that we can that we can say that about for sure. When it comes to the moon, you know there are plankton and algae that time their 
blooms, you know, two days after the sixth full moon of the year. And they do that with astonishing regularity. And they are organisms that have remained evolutionarily unchanged for millions and millions of years. Um, you know, and those are the types of organisms that we are evolved from, um, you know, in some sense. So the, the awareness of the lunar cycle is deeply, deeply encoded uh, into our bodies at the cellular level. Um, you know, in order to, to be a cell, you could argue that some um, implicit awareness of the lunar cycles uh, might even be, it might even be a prerequisite of the type of life that exists on this planet. Probably a bold claim. Uh, so hence the, the maybe around it. Um, so when it comes to the other planets, um, you know, I, I, I see the patterns, I see the, the evidence, um, I see it manifesting. The how, you know, the, 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 right. the mechanism that, that ties it together, I don't know. It's a mystery and I'm, I'm happy to, to be oriented towards the deepening of my relationship to that mystery um, as opposed to <clears throat> being in a kind of investigative mode where I'm trying to collapse it down to the how, some, some, some equation that I can understand and say, ah, that, that's it, that's how it works. Mm -hmm. you know, it's less interesting to, to me, but there are, there are astrologers who are interested in that. Um, and, and many, many theories um, of, of varying interest to me and, and varying validity probably. Um, but, you know, the <laughs> butterfly effect thing is also an interesting metaphor for it. You know, we're kind of talking about chaos theory, right, with, with the butterfly effect. And, um, you know, a very important, like, fundamental axiom in, in chaos theory is the sensitivity to starting conditions. So um, the birth chart, you know, the, the depiction of the zodiac as it was when a person was born um, is a depiction of the starting conditions, you know. We can see the solar system as a kind of clock uh, that tells the archetypal time. Um, it's a useful metaphor for a few reasons. Um, it shows you the, the, the archetypal time of day that you were born, it tells you the starting conditions. Um, and like, if we understand, I, I don't have a deep understanding of chaos theory, um, but if we understand astrology as working through chaos theory, then it makes sense that an individual that comes into existence uh, at a certain archetypal time will carry a kind of time stamp uh, in, in the psyche. The other thing that's useful about the clock metaphor, well, two things. Just because you have a clock that works, uh, you would never, on that basis, expect that the clock is therefore the source of time itself. You know, <laughs> the clock just tells the time. Uh, it's it's in sync right. with the passing of time, um, so it's a useful thing. Um, so the solar system is thus useful as a clock, uh, but we don't necessarily, on that basis, jump to 
believing that the, the planets are the source of the archetypal energy. Um, they're just in sync with the archetypal passing of energy through the universe, participating in it the same way that we do. Um, you know, and finally, um, just because you've built a clock that works, you would not, on that basis, declare that no other clock designs are possible. You know, <laughs> if you've got a clock, we've got a grandfather clock, you just invented it, you know, with all the mechanisms and right. stuff, um, you'd be crazy um, to say digital clocks cannot work because this is the only one, you know, so many ways of interpreting the symbolic um, kind of layer of our universe um, exist and are valid. Um, and so a few a few things to maybe to, to respond to there, but yeah. Yeah. I love that. There's uh, what I, what I heard is just a, an acknowledgement of a beautiful synchronicity uh, or synchronicities that exist that we can access in, in, in a little way. Maybe like a, a, what the metaphor that's coming up to me is like, you know, looking through a keyhole mm. um, and getting a glimpse that there's a much bigger uh, reality there that maybe we're not always uh, tapped into on a cognitive level. And that's okay. Well, we don't have to. And, and it sounds like it's a rabbit hole that one could really go down as far as like trying to put some meaning and like really figure it out and, and have a definitive, this is what this is all about. Or you can just say, Hey, I'm acknowledging that there's a lot of beauty and synchronicity that, and, and choosing to acknowledge it, choosing to, to breathe with it yeah, and appreciate it rather than trying to figure yeah. it out. And then I also love the metaphor that you used of the different clocks, you know, and the different, mechanisms within the different clocks and um I, I like the juxtaposition between the grandfather clock and the digital clock and what also came up was the sundial you know and that these are all telling time as long as they're aligned in the right way right um and they're still on the system like they they're still working to a certain degree right if if you set the digital clock an hour ahead it's still counting the seconds and the minutes and the hours, it might be an hour ahead, depending on your perspective. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's a, that's a beautiful metaphor. Um, these different systems and different ways of connecting to that, that symphony. Yeah. How did you, uh, how did you get involved in archetypal astrology? What, what made you interested in it? I guess a, f a few things converged for me. Um, my primary interest, uh, kind of psychologically, philosophically, before being opened uh, to astrology, um, was Jung. Um, so I spent a lot of time during the pandemic uh, reading uh, various parts of Jung's collected works, trying to read them, you know, with, uh, you know, varying degrees of of comprehension and, and success. It has to be said, you know, he's a tough cookie. Um, and so, yeah, I was writing a lot about Jung at the time. Um, 
yeah, trying to kind of write about my um, experience of trying to understand him. Um, and it was in that process that at one time, I mean, this, this is good because it'll lead on to, to Tarnas and, and Groff. Um, you know, at one, at one point I realized that in order to read Jung well, I would need a better, deeper, more comprehensive understanding of the kind of cultural context in which he was himself writing. Um, mm. So mm. I'd heard of Richard Tarnas and I had heard of his book, The Passion of the Western Mind, which is not in any way an astrological book. Um, you know, it's a, it's kind of a comprehensive telling of the story of the Western mind from the time of the pre-Socratic uh, Greek philosophers kind of through to like just about the beginning of, of post-modernity. Um, and I knew that he himself was a Jungian and I thought, well, if I'm going to, you know, read something like this, I'll read the one that's written by a Jungian. And I was really blown away by his ability to articulate trends and zeitgeists and kind of categories of thought and the different um, sort of underlying themes that kind of underpinned different philosophical, scientific, religious uh, movements and developments uh, in a way that was yeah very flowing, very comprehensible. Um, you know, and I realize now um, that it's his archetypal eye. Um, it's his eye for, um, you know, it's his understanding of the different archetypal categories of human experience that allowed him um, to kind of put forth that story in such a, um, yeah, a, an unusually flowing and comprehensible manner. Um, so having read that book, I was very, very grateful to him um, and uh, trusted him, uh, you know, pretty much implicitly because, you know, it's a serious, it's a serious work and I learned a lot. Um, and I really admired him as a writer. Um, so, you know, at that point I had heard of Cosmos and Psyche, um, without really knowing too much about it. Um, and I saw an interview with him where he spoke about, uh, the connection between, uh, excuse me, uh, between, uh, astrology and psychedelic therapy and his time meeting Stan Groff, um, and that's, that's when I start the first inkling of taking astrology seriously, really, uh, kicked in for me. Um, so maybe I'll just tell that story in brief. Um, so Rick Tarnas and Stan Groff met, I believe, in, in the early 70s at, at Esalen Institute. Uh, by this point, Stan had been working as a as a therapist conducting LSD trials for, for over a decade uh, or about a decade. Um, and he had a great deal of case studies and, and material um, to analyze. And uh, him and, and Richard Tarnas, neither of them uh, particularly interested uh, in astrology at this time were 
attempting to find some ways of explaining what was going on with LSD. Um, right. You know, why right. is it that some people um, take LSD and they have experiences of dissolving into unified oneness, you know, with the, with the Tao, um, these pure bliss, oceanic spirituality type experiences. Uh, while someone else who takes it, even at the same time on the same day, uh, could have an experience of descending into, into hell and uh, confronting demons or having the world crumble and be destroyed, um, you know, and reforming anew in front of them. Uh, why is it that some people who had been committed to uh, their religious faith for their whole lives um, could seemingly lose it, um, you know, and uh, whilst other people who had been equally committed atheists could suddenly find a, a, a spiritual path, um, you know, what, what's going on? Um, so I think they, they looked at a lot of stuff, you know, a lot of factors trying to, trying to predict, you know, find some predictive capacity, find some interpretive capacity uh, without very much success. It's actually very hard. Um, a very hard thing to do is predict <laughs> what's going to happen when you take acid, you know? Um, right. So, and, and it has to be said, even with astrology, it's still hard. Um, but somebody, <laughs> um, some fateful individual whose name I can't remember, apologies to that person, um, a colleague of theirs suggested um, that they look at people's natal charts, you know, look at their their planetary placements, you know, so look at where the planets were when the person was born, um, and then look at the relative positions of the of the planets on the day of the session. And um, yeah, lo and behold, uh, there was a striking number of correlations, far more correlations than they had found tracking any other metrics. Um, so, you know, it was at that point that Richard Tarnas, Stan Groff has not, um, to my knowledge, done loads and loads of astrological research, but Richard Tarnas's life at that point uh, became essentially about uh, understanding, uh, like, what's going on there. Um, and so he actually then wrote Passion of the Western Mind uh, before releasing any astrological work whatsoever uh, in order to establish himself as a credible person, a serious intellectual uh you know, a, a historian and philosopher in his own right of, of some repute. Um, and, and then released, uh, finally released Cosmos and Psyche, uh, the kind of, which is the kind of the foundational text for archetypal astrology, uh, in 2006 or 2007. Uh, you, so, you know, the trick, uh, it worked on me, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And yeah, so since then, that that's that's kind of also been my focus. You know, I, I took a course with um, 
a great astrologer and you know a, a personal mentor that I'm very uh, very grateful to Bren Butler uh, following that and then took it again and um, in, a, in slightly more of a, a helping role I guess the following year and and yeah the rest is history really um, yeah I didn't know when I started googling you know I found a couple of papers that Stan's name was on and so I just assumed that it was more of a uh, sort of mutual, like they both contributed the same amount. So that's that's really interesting to know that um, even though that was what brought my curiosity in, um, you know, it's it's interesting to yeah. to learn. I mean, that. Stan definitely uh, contributed greatly to the archetypal astrology course, but I I feel that his yeah his calling has been much more on the on the psychedelic side, whereas. Tarnas's calling seems to have been to kind of fill out the the astrological uh, side of the puzzle there. Yeah, and so many different dimensions. You know, I think for me, learning about um, Stan Groff's work, one of the most fascinating was the perinatal matrices and like how you know his theory of how our experiences during the birthing process contributed to these archetypal experiences that we can experience within psychedelics or you know other expanded mm. states and to me it really made a lot of sense of like oh well this is this this is one possible reason why people tend to have these similar experiences because we've had these similar uh, experiences during birth and didn't have a way to complete that trauma cycle or like express like, Hey, that, that was really scary being in that tunnel yeah. for so long, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, th things like that. So, um, it's just, it's, I I'm constantly fascinated by, you know, how, how deep these rabbit holes mm. can go, you know, in terms of, uh, and, and just so grateful that there are people out here that have dedicated, their lives and your big chunks of their lives, at least to, uh, to doing this research and to being curious. And, uh, cause it's, it's in, in the same way that like, I feel like I'm getting a crash course of education, listening to you, you know, there's so many of these giants that we can like mm. really say, thank you for, for doing all this work and for distilling it down into something that, I can digest in a few hours, at least on a tertiary yeah. level, you know, rather than spend the next 20 years <laughs> trying to investigate and get curious yeah. about. So it's just, I feel like the more I learn about anything in the transpersonal realm, the more fascination and the more gratitude I come mm. away with. Cause there's so much yeah. there. Yeah. So, yeah. I'd love to, to talk about the perinatal matrices and how they fit in with the astrological picture, because it's, it's really one Beautiful. of the most uh, stunning and uh, just fascinating aspects of it. Um, so what Rick and one of the things that, that Richard Tarnas and Stan Groff have kind of co-discovered um, is that the 
the perinatal matrices as described by, by Groff. So uh, BPM1, the unitive womb experience, you know, experiences of, of, of bliss and, and, you know, uh, yeah, oceanic feelings and, and divine uh, connection and, and stillness and peace uh, being the, the kind of happy womb experience. Um, right. Um, Tarnas found that this was associated, this is exactly the same archetypal resonance uh, as the planet Neptune. Um, so that's, that's of some interest, uh, you know, to people who are doing psychedelic sessions. You know, you often see that people uh, who have Neptune activated by transit with other planets uh, will, will have those types of experiences more available to them. Um, BPM two, you know, the, the, the toxic womb experience, uh, where the, where the unborn child, uh, kind of first encounters the universe as an oppressive force. Um, you know, it's the first experience of disconnection, uh, loneliness, abandonment, um, boundaries, um, constraint, limitation. This is the, the same archetypal complex, um, you know, pretty much precisely, um, as the planet Saturn. So again, it's very, wow. very interesting, very much of use, um, BPM three, um, you know, when the baby's in the birth canal and is in great danger under great pressure, um, with a sensation of movement, the possibility of light at the end of the tunnel, um, you know, this is the, the feelings that people experience in psychedelic sessions that are associated with BPM three are the same represent the same complex of feelings, uh, that are associated with the planet Pluto, um, you know, transformation, death and rebirth, um, erotic feelings, you know, it's a, a strange one to bring up with people who haven't. Uh, sort of been initiated into Groff's uh, worldview, but, you know, many people experience in, in sessions when they're reliving uh, passage through the birth canal, um, the first kind of erotic or sexual experience. Um, and it often can have to do with if the cord is tied around the neck, um, things like that. It kind of, uh, that whole complex of things, which you wouldn't necessarily intuitively put together just on a logical basis, that they're all, they are all archetypally um, in the same category. And that is the category that seems to be presided over by Pluto. Um, and then finally, uh, BPM4, you know, the ecstatic experience of rebirth, um, that you know states of kind of active ecstasy um you know the these are associated with uranus um so it's really an amazing synchronicity that the that the four stages of birth um are just very very well described by the four outer planets of our solar system yeah i know it's uh, <laughs> you know what's funny is um I think one thought that came up was that 
there 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 have been a few episodes on the show that I feel are like okay like if you're just brand new to certain things you know you're curious about transformation this is a good place to jump in and we're definitely getting into some deeper water yeah. here right um so just to acknowledge that and to invite people uh if if any of this is is really like if you're like I want to learn more I mean I feel like we could do a whole podcast about just the perinatal mm. matrices right so it's a it's a really deep topic that we're jumping into and one that I've found fascinating, I would definitely recommend, you know, doing some more, some reading if, uh, if it's of interest. Um, but yeah, that, that was the other thing that, that jumped out was like, okay, the four outer planets. And so, hmm, I guess my next question is like, well, what about the inner planets? What are those tied to? Um, and then in the back of my mind is also, I think a thing that we're, sort of slowly driving towards, which is how can, how can people use this information to sort of like, um, yeah. to work with their inner work, whether that's breath work or psychedelics or anything. And, um, I think we'll get yeah. there and I like, I like the path that we're taking to get there. Yeah, um, well, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a beautiful, big, uh, glorious topic, you know, of, of these different dimensions that we're dipping into. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just, I, it blows me away to, to, to think about it. And it, what it brings up for me is just uh, a great feeling of, of connection with the, with the cosmos, you know, because it's like, even as we're yeah. before, before we do anything really out of, out of choice, um, we're already participating in these dynamics, you know, we're already, um, getting to grips with the archetypal underpinning of our cosmos. Um, and yeah, that just, uh, it, it's, it's a good feeling, uh, for, for people who are open to, to, to it. It's, it's nice. <laughs> it's, it's grounding, you know, even kind of grounding oneself in, in the furthest reaches yeah. of, of the solar system might seem like a funny thing, but it certainly has that effect for me. It is, it is grounding to me. It's, it's grounding to me that there, that there are systems, um, that, and it, it, it reminds me of, um, experience I had once during an ayahuasca ceremony that was really transformative. Um, you know, we were, we were in this dark room for most of the ceremony and towards the end, um, the facilitators lit a fire and I had this experience. Well, I had a few different experiences. The first one was, um, that like, I, I felt connected to my ancestors and I felt connected to all the people throughout history that had gathered around a fire and the healing that had happened within those isolated uh, events and those isolated fires, but had that, that knowledge on this very subconscious level of that there's safety, that there's food, that there's gathering and connection and healing is it's almost in our DNA, you know, whether we realize it or not, there's just something very healing about being around a fire. 
And I experienced that through this sort of seeing it as my ancestors of fire being this magic. Cause there was a point where there was no fire and then there was, and you know, that somebody had to tend to it. And it was this, this force that they didn't understand in the way that we do now. Right now we can say, oh, there's this, here's the science behind fire. And, and, and this is, this is what makes it. And these, these molecules interacting with each other and the different elements and, and everything like that. Right. We, we can, we can systematize it. We can explain it through that lens. And it led into this curiosity of, well, what if everything that we don't understand that we consider magic or we consider, no, this is unexplainable. This is transpersonal. What if all of that is just fire that we just haven't figured out how to explain the science behind yet? You know, and what if, what if magic is just science that we haven't figured out? Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, certainly medicine work is one way to, you know, you talked about earlier as well, looking through the keyhole is just, uh, you know, it's a way to, to widen that aperture just a little bit, or, you know, I think it was Grof who said that LSD would be for psychology, what what the telescope was for astronomy and what the microscope uh, was for biology or chemistry. Um, you know, it's yeah. kind of um, opening up the, the possibility of, of, a, of a broader view, you know, an, an expanded uh, consciousness, allowing us m more angles, um, you know, on from which to, to see our experience. Um, kind of see more of it um in that way yeah it's like a sense of wonder yeah. for me you know it's like of of it, it, it's it's like things zoom out and zoom in at the same yeah. time you know just to understand like how vast and how beautiful and how complex um this symphony that we're a part of and and also experiencing I, I love that metaphor that you used of the symphony is and yet at the same time like that it, it's it's all interconnected mm. with us it's it's just a uh, and and then we can we can open to that and then we can experience mm. that it's just an absolutely beautiful thing mm. to me do you think it would be um good useful uh interesting to people who are listening if I kind of, so I've kind of then talked about the four outermost planets and their significances a little bit, I could do a similar thing for the, the sun and the moon and the inner planets, um, just to kind of yeah. keep it fairly brief, but um, just to give a sense of like more like the complete picture. Um, I'll, Absolutely. I'll start in the middle. Uh, so, um, so the sun, you know, it has to do with our, for us, it has to do with our sense of identity. In a Jungian sense, it, it governs the whole spectrum of selfhood. So from the, the, the smallest, most defensive ego, <laughs> all the way up to the, the highest, most enlightened self. Um, 
the uh, mm. the sun sort of speaks to that wherever we are in that process of self-development or however we experience selfhood uh, the sun spe speaks to that um, also our our capacity for creativity our creative vitality our ability to um you know our kind of willpower um uh, on a kind of uh, surface level, I suppose, or kind of in the in the day world, um, our willpower and ability to to make changes in the world and our warmth, you know, um, our personality. Um, the moon, um, you know, is the kind of it is the yin to that to all that yang. You know, it's our feelings, um, our, our emotions, our um, our experience of and need for kinship, um, our, our need for, uh, nourishment of all kinds, um, you know, our, our experience of and need for safety and a, and a home, um, and it, it kind of speaks to our, our domestic lives, um, yeah, and the kind of, the kind of emotional experience of the of the everyday world, as well as the kind of more uh, deeply um, deeply felt, uh, reflective um, emotional states. Um, so then, next one out from the sun is Mercury. Kind of uh, seems to preside over our. The entire cognitive arena um so thoughts ideas the the underlying logic of things you know mercury helps us to perceive um yeah the the, the underlying logic of things how things are put together um has to do with language and all kind of sets of signs and symbols that are used to communicate you know including numbers as well um everything like that. Mercury is the root of our word for market and commerce, um, as well as many other words. Uh, it's a very typically <laughs> mercurial thing that's happened to the word mercury. It's, um, it's taken on many meanings and gone into many different um, uh, kind of arenas uh, of human experience. Um, but that's kind of, it speaks to the nature of language and to the nature of the Mercury archetype. Um, you know, Venus, everyone's kind of familiar with Venus, um, but maybe in, in kind of typical um, astrological circles, it might seem a bit, a bit superficial. She uh, may appear yeah, kind of frivolous. Um, and for sure, Venus has to do with our, our pleasure. And often we take pleasure in very uh, frivolous and superficial things. Um, but you know, Venus also it, uh, refers to the part of us, uh, the kind of soft underbelly, you know, the things that we value um, most, most dearly, the, the places that are unguarded and most easily wounded in us. Um, 
the the heart's mm. desire, you know, love, um, both romantic love and um, and friendship, um, um, and you know, I mean, all the archetypes participate in the kind of greater archetype of love itself, uh, but Venus seems to be very directly um, related to love. Uh, Mars is uh, another one that people will have a lot of um, preconceived notions about, and many of those notions are, well, all of those notions pretty much are, are correct, uh, but maybe a little, a little paints an incomplete picture. Mars does have to do with aggression, does have to do with war, um, has to do, you know, also with courage, with bravery, with the kind of, uh, the willingness to take a leap of faith. Mars is the kind of catalyst. Um, it's the kind of let's stop talking and do it um, attitude. Um, Without Mars, I like to say, without Mars, life would be very boring. Um, not much would happen. Um, only things that have been carefully considered would happen. Um, and that would probably slow down um, <laughs> our experience of life to a kind of tedious pace. Um, and then I guess last of all, Jupiter, um, you know, is, is associated with expansion. Um, magnitude, breadth. Um, it's it, it's associated with good fortune and benevolence. Um, it makes everything bigger that it's interacting with and inflects our when Jupiter is interacting uh, with with something else in our psyches. It inflects our attitude about that thing towards the positive, uh, as well as making positive outcomes. Uh, more available, more likely. Um, it also has to do with, with confidence. And so, you know, all of these archetypes are spectrums. Um, Jupiter is a very clear one to make that point, you know, because yes, on the one hand, it has to do with fortune, with positive outcomes, with confidence. On the other hand, it definitely also has to do with greed. Um, with, with hubris and overconfidence, arrogance, um, you know, the kind of Icarusian flying too close to the sun um, impulse that we all share. So I hope that's not kind of too much uh, information overload all, all in one go like that, but um, it's there if people uh, are interested. Yeah, I think more and more during this conversation, what's coming up for me is like the when when people say like uh, we're the universe experiencing mm. itself. That's what it's reminding me of because it's these different. It's like, almost like I'm picturing this reflection of just our, a collective. You know, these different parts of our personality. I think I'm just going to keep the curiosity during this. You know, this this episode, and rather than saying. I'm going to come away with some definitive <laughs> answers that I didn't have before, yeah. you know, um, and just in, enjoy it for, you know, for the fact that you're sharing all this knowledge and um, uh, just being open mm -hmm. to the wonder and the mystery of it, yeah. you know? Right. 
everything is related to everything. You know, this is right. something that comes up both through the psychedelic work and, and through the astrological work. It's like in a field of synchronicity, that there's a meaningful relationship between any two points. Um, some more meaningful than others, probably, depending on your perspective. But, um, you know, you, you said that earlier, an interesting phrase, you said, just breathe with it. And, you know, that's, um, there's a, a quote from Plotinus, the, the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher, um, which really well describes, you know, and anticipates Jung's thoughts about synchronicity. You know, it's, it's the, everything breathes together. The universe is full of signs. Um, can't remember the, the precise quote, uh, but that's the idea. You know, we're, we all, we're all breathing in the same air, the planets, um, the animals, the plant life, the rocks, the humans. Um, it's all, it's all part of the same organism um, in some sense. Yeah, I wish I had more words for this because it's like it's to me it's it's almost this just this feeling that I can connect to, and when I'm open and I remember that that connection is so close that you know it can be in the wind blowing through the trees or just observing my breath or something you know just something very simple within my environment it makes me feel still it makes me feel grateful also you know i guess the other sort of metaphor that's coming up around this is like let's say you go to like a great art museum you go to you go to the louvre right like i don't think there's a more famous art museum than the louvre even if you don't know anything about the painters the artists or anything about art history art appreciation there might be a piece there that's so striking to you that it just stops you in your yeah. tracks, that you connect with it on a level beyond the cognition. And then you can go and learn about that artist or that particular style or the history of, you know, whatever it is. And then it enriches that experience. Yeah but it, you don't have to have that to like, to get it, yeah. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And I feel like that's some of what we're talking about here. It's like, we're, we're, we're adding in some, some levels and some, some layers and some, some background and some perspective that, um, we're all participating in, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. And, um, and then, yeah, being able to have some more of that background to me is very yeah. enriching and, and really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. So I think that, yeah. And I think that leads into like a good question, which is like, how, how can the average person integrate some of what we've been talking about into their transformational yeah. work? How, how, how would you suggest that they approach that? Yeah. Mm. It's a, yeah, it's a really important question, you know, how to kind of come down from the abstract uh, 
level or kind of even from the even if we're standing in wonder at it um you know what does it what does it mean for us um so for people who are considering um doing psychedelic therapy and people who are um who are involved with breath work um i guess that's that's who i'll kind of mostly speak to um sure you know first of all as as preparation for uh for, for psychedelic therapy sessions or for medicine ceremonies or for holotropic breath work <clears throat> um you know it's important to remember that uh astrology is only archetypally predictive right so it's we're not going to um it's important not to slip into the kind of i mean it's difficult because there's definitely magic in the universe uh but there's a kind of magical thinking that we can slip into which has a kind of desperation about it as a kind of attachment about it a desire to control things um so everything that i'll say in a minute <laughs> about how to use astrology as a as a preparation tool for psychedelic therapy you know it comes with that caveat um if if astrology engenders an attitude in you um that makes you seek increasing levels of control over the experience that you're having or wanting to have um then you shouldn't use it at all um <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of tool that you have to be able to let go of um you know and 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 a big a big help in that is is understanding that the archetypes themselves are they're multivalent so they are spectrums of possible um experience they're not specific experiences um so with that said um you know there are there are times when it when it's good to look at the chart uh before a session um in particular you know going back to the the perinatal matrices you know any anyone who's who's had experiences of perinatal material surfacing People might not even realize that that's what it was, but if you've had experiences, particularly of BPM2 and BPM3 uh, coming up, so that would be experiences of, of coldness for BPM2, loneliness, abandonment, um, feelings of being stuck or trapped, um, you know, feelings of, uh, yeah, being kind of cruelly, uh, punitively, uh, kind of stopped and you limited and constrained in your experience and um, that that would all be bpm2 and for bpm3 you know experiences of, of intense fear um you know feeling of of danger being scared that you're going to die um you know these, these are all things that, that 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 can arise when bpm3 is 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 being re-experienced and and ultimately being consumed you know from the psyche um these are good things 
to happen during a session. Um, but we can use the outer planets to see when it's more likely that that material will surface. Um, you know, absolutely those things are not to be avoided. Um, you know, Stan said um, at some point, this is something that I heard Ren, uh, my astrology teacher, say that Stan said, just to lay uh, that out. Um, you know, that he, he prefers to do sessions uh, during what people would think of as difficult transits, because that way you can consume more karma. Um, and Mm -hmm. uh, and you don't have to carry it around the whole rest of the time. You know, I've had experiences in psilocybin sessions of, of really intense fear. Um, you know, just, just nothing but fear, <laughs> fear and doubt, just wanting it to end, trying to get out, not being able to get out, um, you know, sort of toing and froing between that BPM two state and the BPM three state. Um, and, mm -hmm you know, one minute feeling trapped and the next minute feeling very much in danger. And that session was able to, to resolve into a, uh, a very blissful and pretty hilarious kind of state. And I felt really good at the end of it. And following that, you know, I'm carrying around less fear, less doubt, less shame, whatever it is. Um, so, so those are all good things to happen. Um, but it is good to, to know if they, if they might come up, for example, if you feel like there's a high chance that you, you might be experiencing BPM two, um, then if you have any wounds of omission from childhood, so a, a lack of physical contact, uh, as a young child, or, or, or if you were separated from your mother or have difficult uh, childhood memories surrounding that, um, then during Saturn transits, there's a high chance that stuff is going to come up. And, you know, Stan has found that those psychological wounds can be healed very straightforwardly um, in psychedelic therapy, provided that there's the availability of warm human contact. Um, you know, there needs to be that. Uh, otherwise, you could deepen those wounds. So if you if you struggle with that type of thing, uh, for instance, um, and you want to do psychedelic therapy, then you then you should do it. <laughs> if, if that's your path and you and you feel um, really set on it and clear that that's that that's um, something that you want to try, um, then you should. And if you have a Saturn transit, um, that's no reason not to do it, uh, but it is a reason to make sure that you have a sitter um, and to make sure that you have clear, um, like clearly verbalized, well-communicated agreements about what kind of physical contact is permitted and, uh, and is appropriate and good ways of, of communicating during the session um, that you would like physical contact or, or that you would like the physical contact to stop. Uh, language can be difficult. Um, so things like that, you know, um, if you're going to have BPM3 uh, material surfacing, then you might get very active. You know, you might need to yell. Uh, you might need to pound the floor. You might want to move around a lot. You might be very compelled 
um, especially if, say, Mars is involved in a, in a Pluto alignment, you might feel very compelled to get up and leave, get up off the mat, go outside, go and do something physical. And, you know, depending on your, um, on your set and setting, um, that might be okay. Uh, but it's generally not something I personally would advise. Um, and it might be that you need a sitter in a situation like that who is capable of physically overpowering you in a gentle <laughs> and pre-agreed, clearly communicated way. Or you might need two sitters, um, you know, who can kind of form a, form a, a, a solid wall to stop you from, you know, leaving the house and walking out uh, down a busy road because that's what you feel like doing. Um, right. So there are some things like that that I, that I believe it's, it's very, very much a vital tool for. Um, and, you know, I could give more and more examples and we could get into more and more detail, but it's probably enough to sort of give a, give a taste. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, well, I, I'll say this before I before I launch into my curiosity of, uh, I think some of what you just described is good best practices, regardless of whether you're paying attention to the uh, astrology, right? In terms of communication and and clear boundaries with with the sitters. A as somebody that's running breathwork circles that are aligning with the full moon, are there other things? that I should be looking for um, as far as creating that container? Because so far it's been like, okay, there's the full moon. And then sometimes I'll look at what sign the moon is in as kind of a, you know, just sort of an idea of what people might be going through just kind of energetically. But I'd be curious in terms of like making that container even more special. Yeah. Like, are there other things that I could, I could consider or research? I think, uh, there are many things to consider, you know, the, the main, the main, the most driving forces in the psyche are the four outer planets, uh, in, in my view. Um, so it's always worth paying attention to them. Um, and <clears throat> they're very slow moving, uh, you know, so the, the dynamics uh, involving those planets will last for months or years um, at a time. So at, if you're looking for a, a day in a kind of within a lunar cycle to choose, um, then in all likelihood, those dynamics are kind of going on in the background and it's not going to change from day to day. You know, paying attention to the moon. Um, if I'm, say I'm thinking about doing some breath work or, or a psychedelic session sometime in the next month, I'll definitely look at the moon. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's how things land with us personally that is governed by the moon. You know, it's how we react emotionally <laughs> when stuff comes up. So it might not be, uh, it might not seem as potent uh, a force as say Pluto or Saturn, um, or Uranus. Um, but it really does, uh, I've found in my sessions, it, it does seem to really affect how, how I react and obviously how we react to material that comes up, um, 
you know, it creates that feedback loop. And, and if we're able to be open to what's coming up, then we can go deeper and deeper into it. Um, and that's also the good. Um, so in a word, uh, there's no, there's not like a, a one or two things to look out for, you know, there's always things you can look at in a, in a chart, but the, the, the major dynamics change too slowly, um, for it to be a sort of concern on a daily basis. Um, and the kind of, um, yeah, there's a lot of other concerns, but nothing major, you know, almost, almost every combination of dynamics, um, as depicted by the chart, um, is worth experiencing in an expanded state, you know, with, if we're, we're moving towards wholeness, you know, um, so right. experiences of, um, yeah, of loss and loneliness are just as valuable as, uh, experiences of, of, of breakthroughs and ecstasy and bliss, um, that, yes. you know, it's, it's all, it's all worth going through in, in an expanded state. Um, there is kind of one exception to this, um, <laughs> which I can mention it's worth mentioning because it's kind of coming up. Um, so yeah, um, <laughs> it seems as though combinations of Saturn and Neptune are quite difficult for journeying under, um, not to say that it shouldn't be done. Saturn and Neptune, uh, when, when they're constellated together in the sky, in any of the angles that I, well, in any of the kind of quote unquote hard aspects. So conjunctions, oppositions, and squares, um, <clears throat> it can be difficult, you know, because Neptune is the transcendent principle itself. It, it really encompasses a lot of psychedelic experience. Um, <clears throat> it is the divine ground of, of being, um, so when it's in dynamic interaction with Saturn, um, we can have experiences of meaninglessness, you know, loss of spiritual connection. Um, you know, Saturn can really clamp down on our feeling of interconnectedness. Um, it can be an experience of loss of oneness. Um, these, these experiences are valuable, um, to, to go through provided that there's, um, every chance possible being provided that there's every chance for the session to resolve well. So provided you have good set and setting provided there's a sitter, um, but for facilitators, it's worth noting that there's a, a conjunction in the sky between Saturn and Neptune, uh, between April of next year and May of 2027. Um, so it's a, it's a long lasting wow. dynamic and it's quite a contrast to the dynamics that we've had for the last couple of years. Um, and it, mm. it might mean that people feel more blocked. It might mean that people need more support. Um, it might be harder to access Neptunian states of oceanic spirituality. The Saturn and Neptune, I think it's the same uh, conjunction that happened 
you know, in in halfway through 1972, at the end of the true kind of spiritual end of the 60s, you know. Um, so it's something to watch out for. Um, and there's certain periods within that where Mars is also significantly joining that conjunction in different ways. Um, so when Mars gets involved, you know, it, it can bring up our, it can make us very angry um, about the experience that we're having or not having. Um, Mars and Saturn together um, can be obstinate, uh, can, can be stubborn, um, you know, it, it's like the uh, the unstoppable force meets the immovable object. Um, so uh, to refer to Ren again, he always he always talks about it as uh, as like tripping under Mars, Saturn, Neptune's like going camping in the rain. Like you can do it, and you might have a good time regardless. But if you know it's going to rain, do you really want to go camping? you know for sure it's going to rain um so there are some times sort of uh march until mid-may of next year uh august uh until mid-september of next year august the following year that those those will be challenging times for people uh doing this kind of work and you know if you if you can avoid it um you you may choose to do that and if you're a facilitator <laughs> you may wish to kind of kind of be prepared Take a yeah vacation. i mean you could, you could plan your vacations <laughs> or just being prepared you know people might people right. might not have the experiences they want um and it might be difficult mm. for the for the experiences that they do have um to to resolve in a in a kind of peaceful or joyful way you know it's it, we should have those experiences that we don't want to have um but we right we would like it uh it, it's better it's more healing you know it if if it resolves in 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 a peaceful or a joyful ecstatic um you know kind of kind of a way um so i just thought <laughs> i'd mention those dates um it's uh you know seeing as we're talking about it yeah, no, I appreciate it. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you would say more about those difficult experiences and the value of, of having them. Um, I really like what you said about the karma completing. Yeah. And I think, I think you could say that something similar from the lens of the nervous system, right? Is like the reason that we're carrying around that karma is that there is an incomplete experience that charge is still active and can become reactivated based on re-experiencing or something that's yeah. reminding us um on a cellular or nervous system level um but sp speak a little bit more about the value of having those experiences yeah i mean i think I'm, i mentioned this phrase before you know it's uh In my personal experience, it certainly feels as though it's possible to consume uh, those difficult uh, energies from the psyche, you know. Um, 
I, th I think it was Stan that said it, but um, it could have been somebody else. But the phrase has stuck with me, um, that it's almost as though every human being is kind of born into this world with as much suffering as as you're ever going to get um like that mm. when we're in the womb you know up to the point uh, where labor starts we're at one not just with the mother but for all intents and purposes with the, the entire rest of the universe um we're, we're connected we're in an ideal state um and once labor starts and the chemical balance of the womb changes and there's not enough space and we are disconnected before we have any linguistic or cognitive machinery that will help us to contextualize that or make sense of it um you know we go through you know the most terrifying and dangerous experience that we're ever going to go through um, and so as a result of that, we kind of have a, a well of, of those experiences, uh, within us. Um, and, you know, going through reliving some of that stuff or going through, uh, experiences that are thematically have a similar tone or archetypally have the same, have the same tone or evoke the same complex, um, you know, it's like going to the well with a bucket, um, you know, so, and sometimes literally it's a bucket of tears. <laughs> you just go there and you just pull up some, some of that trauma, some of that suffering, um, and express it, you know, fully feel it, um, and fully express it. Um, and, and thereby, you know, you have a little bit less of it to carry around um, in your day-to-day -day life. And you can sort of, if you don't do this kind of work, um, and I don't just mean psychedelic work, there's lots of ways to get in contact with, with our deep, um, you know, our deeply held feelings and emotions and express them. Um, but if you don't have any way of doing it, then you get this constant drip, drip, drip of it, um, into your, daily life and um it might seem more manageable in the short term but it it really is worse <laughs> like <laughs> it really like i'm i try to remain agnostic about a lot of stuff that probably hasn't come across in this podcast um but but i'm not i'm not agnostic about that it's definitely worse um to, to to just go through life with that drip of of suffering um you know it's not that medicine work or breath work is a panacea that's going to cure um ev everything that's that's wrong with your life you know you you come back from your sessions and there's still life is still filled with constant work that needs to be done um Sure. you know and that that is what it is but it's a case of how do you how do you feel while you're doing that work um what are you uh what are you able to 
how, to, how are you able to relate to the world around you, to the people around you? Like, um, if you, if you've consumed some of that suffering, if you've expressed it, um, and you're not carrying so much of it around, um, what's the nature of the work you're able to do after that? Um, so I guess that's my, my feelings about it. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. This is beautiful. Um, and then I think, I think as a follow-up question, um, what are some of the ways that you, that have helped you open to that experience? Because, you know, um, you came to, to one of my breathwork sessions and, um, you know, not to put you on the spot, but it seemed like you had a pretty profound, uh, emotional experience. And, one of one of my observations was like um, admiration that you know here it was the first time that we had worked together, um, your first time coming into this group, and even in the privacy of your own home, uh, you know you're still sort of in a new environment, and that you were really willing to let go of whatever resistance was there, and I know that that's a very common experience for people. And sometimes there's, it's almost like a practice to be able to open that completely in the moment that doesn't often come during the first experience. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I just wanted to say thank you for being willing to go there and, 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 and be there for yourself in that yeah. way. Um, but also just, you know, if you had any, words of, of wisdom or advice for people that are finding themselves in that resistance as, as they come into these experiences. Yeah. I was thinking about this. Um, and I think it's a good moment to acknowledge my privilege, uh, you know, in, in this conversation, because so much of, um, what, makes it possible to go there is like a intrinsic inner feeling of safety. Um, and I know that not, not ev that is a luxury that not everybody has. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm very grateful to, to be in that position. Um, and I don't want to sort of make a statement that, that kind of makes anyone feel like they, are somehow deficient or, or insufficient for, you know, not being in that place where it's possible, um, to, to so straightforwardly surrender, you know, I'm not scared of being persecuted, uh, because I'm a white straight man living in a city that's also mostly populated by you know, mostly middle-class straight white people. And it, it, it's all very comfortable. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm lucky that, um, I mean, we all, we are all, we all carry trauma. We all have suffering, you know, and to a certain extent, it's, it's, it's pointless to compare, um, one person's suffering to another, but at the same time, um, I don't have PTSD. You know, I haven't fought in a war zone. Um, I haven't been sexually abused. Like, 
So these are these are things, you know, these are the kinds of things that might prevent some people from immediately being able to to kind of open up, trust the process, surrender to what is happening. And, you know, to those people, like fair play, like for, for going there and trying and, um, and Absolutely. whatever can be done to support and encourage uh, people in that situation, you know, I will do it if I can. And I hope that other people are also doing it. Um, you know, so those are some of the things that are like blockages to surrender. Um, and with that said, you know, there's also, there's more things, um, <laughs> things that I have had to, um, encounter, you know, what, what some people would call monkey mind, you know, um, habitual patterns of thought or, or patterns of reaction that kind of set off chains of thought. Uh, which ultimately become distractions from uh, what what one is trying to do uh, um, in in breathwork or, or or psychedelic therapy. Um, you know, ego defenses often take the form of um, distraction. Um, you know, what about this thing? Um, instead of you know, I'm just here to breathe and feel my emotions. You know, that's a, that's a kind of mantra that you could have, um, in your mind when, when stuff, when you're, when you're there to go through the process and it's not happening because there are thoughts coming up, um, you, you know, you can have a word with yourself and say, I'm just here to breathe and feel my emotions. So that's what I, or, or we, you know, that's what we are here to do. Um, whatever feels most kind of, uh, yeah, appropriate and, and authentic. Um, you know, another thing that comes up is, um, you know, another, another form that resistance takes is kind of critique. Um, like it's very easy. It can be very easy to feel like, oh, the situation is just not right. The space is not being held in the way that I would like. Um, you know, I have these, um, you know, I have better ideas about how this should be done, you know, and it's like, yeah, okay. Noticing those thoughts coming up. But again, like I'm just, you know, I've made a decision, um, to, to, to sit and, and feel my emotions and breathe. And that's what I want to do. Or I, you know, it's a little bit different, um, with the psychedelics, obviously, um, but being able to surrender, uh, is, is very important. Um, with psychedelics, my personal like fallback that I, that, that I kind of land on is, um, it's like reverence, respect, curiosity, uh, the, the, that's my recipe for the possibility of surrendering. <laughs> um, it's like, I, I need to be respectful of the space that I'm entering. Um, and beyond that, I, I need that to deepen into a feeling of reverence, um, for, for what is happening around me. Um, and I also, I just need to remember 
to be curious about what's coming up, um, go be able to move towards it, be able to go deeper. Um, you know, as to what what makes me what makes it possible for me personally to do it, you know, I could list off a bunch of stuff that's in my natal chart. You know, I have a I have a very <laughs> exact opposition between the moon and Pluto, for example, that, you know, it's like my heart is open to the transformative process, you know, <laughs> uh, almost dis right. dispositionally, you know, almost by nature, like I'm ready, um, kind of born ready to, to, to transform the, uh, the, for the kind of transformation and rebirth of my soul. On a, on a regular basis, you know, I'm kind of a, a sucker for it. I guess, um, yeah, the other things that I was thinking about when thinking about this question was, uh, you know, all that stuff, the monkey mind, the critique, um, you know, the, the ways that the mind resists, it's all kind of part of our normal functioning, right? It's like going into an expanded state of consciousness. The mind has protections against that um, because like we need mm -hmm. um, to maintain a, a very kind of a kind of normalized state of consciousness where our perception is working in a certain way. Our nervous system is operating at a certain level. Um, we need to um, almost all of the time stay in quite a narrow band of the possibilities that consciousness offers us. Um, so the task for, uh, if you want to be able to let go more, if you want to be able to surrender, uh, quicker, more deeply, um, is like, well, do things that stretch that band of consciousness just a little bit you know, on a regular basis, um, you know, for people that struggle to feel their emotions deeply, it can be something as simple as just like set aside 10 minutes every day to just lie down and do nothing but feel your emotions and don't try to, don't try to change them. Don't, don't try to uh, do anything about them or do anything with them. Just feel them, you, you know, and, set a timer um, and do that. You know, don't focus on your breathing. Uh, don't do a body scan. Um, <laughs> you know, it's nothing clever about it. It's just, just lie down and feel how you feel and don't engage in distraction. Um, you know, other things that work for me, breath work itself is, can be like that, right? The holotropic breath work can be like that because you start doing the deep breathing and it's like, God, I hate this. <laughs> I don't right. want <laughs> to do this. My body is, you know, the technique is, is coming in and my body is giving me lots of signals that I don't want to do this. Um, but it's like, just, right. just do it, just do it a bit widen that, uh, that band of experience. And, um, yeah, there's loads of ways to do it. Cold water practices are, are like that as well. You know, sort of just, just do something that you're, that your instincts and your mind tells you not to do, as long as you know that it's a healthy thing to do, that it's okay to do it. Um, like don't go and put your hand in the oven, you know, 
um, but things that right. things that research and authoritative sources have shown are safe. Um, yeah, just just doing those things, I guess, is uh, is helpful. So that was a bit of a long ramble, but I hope I said some no, some valuable things. I, I love the long ramble. Yeah, no, it was great, and I, I appreciate that you you began by predicating it on safety and you know that um that there is a privilege in that and there and an acknowledgement you know i think it's an i think that's going to be something i'm going to be kind of thinking about later you know um you know later later today for instance i'm going to go to my job as a specialty therapist at a inpatient uh you know treatment center for behavioral and uh mm. mental health and do some breath work with people and do some mindfulness practice and i'm i'm never sure what people's reaction is going to be you know and and i i think that the oftentimes the breath work that we're doing is the equivalent of a microdose as opposed to, you know, some sort of heroic journey. And I've watched people have extremely profound experiences within that. I've also watched other people nope the hell out of it before they even start. They're just like, nope, we're not doing that. This is not for me today. And uh, a lot of my work, I think, after the initial gut response of feeling some sort of uh, responsibility for the outcome, after I've divorced myself from that, is remembering exactly what you're saying, that there is a privilege in safety that not everybody has access to, and that everybody is doing the best that they can based on the the situation that they're in and that they've experienced and, um, you know, and, and meeting, meeting people exactly there, you know, and, and being gentle and compassionate with that. And, you know, also resistance is part of the process, you know, experiencing resistance is like, that's, that's all the part of it. Um, so experiencing being blocked, experiencing disappointment, um, like, um, yeah, that's what I keep coming back to, I guess. It's like, yeah, fully experience that stuff when it's, while you have the opportunity, while it's safe, you know, while there's someone there who's looking out for you, um, while someone's making a space and a container for, for you to feel that stuff then yeah, get, get stuck in, you know? Yeah. It's, it's something that, um, that one of my breathwork mentors talks about, he calls it Go, he calls breathwork going to the surrender gym and you know it's like it's all well and good when you have that first peak experience and then you're like i want to do this again and then what happens when that doesn't come up what happens when you spend an hour huffing and puffing and like not going anywhere the monkey mind is just really latched on and um you're not having that peak experience like what's your reaction to that like what's that like can you can you sit in the surrender gym and like be with that and like, let that be the experience that you had during the session rather than like 
well, this sucks because I didn't have some sort of like peak, you know, transpersonal yeah. experience yeah. today. Where's my awakening? You know, it's all I'm sure I ordered an awakening. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so just to kind of um, come full circle, uh, I wondered what you feel is is the vital point um, for this conversation. You know, as I was doing my research, I, I came across something on your website that I quite liked and I'd, I'd like to course, share it if yeah. it's okay. And maybe there's maybe there's some reflection on that as well. Life feels fullest to me when I can remember how it feels to be held deeply in the glowing heart of the universe. When things slow down and get so calm that it feels as though my heart might contain the entire cosmos. When the unfathomable awe of existing as a self-conscious life form brings on a swaying kind of vertigo or when the unquenchable and exquisitely profound grief of human existence sweeps over me like a tremendous wave of icy water. I kind of, when I, when I was first trying to write about Jung, the sentiment of that was also in the, in the introduction. Um, you know, it's kind of like, there, there's all these clues that everything's not meaningless you know, and it can be small things. Um, <clears throat> it might be you do a yoga practice and, you know, at the end of the session, you're lying in, you know, in the fetal position or in corpse pose or however you're lying and suddenly you just start crying and there's no, not necessarily even any why to it. But in that moment, you know that life is not meaningless, you know, <laughs> um, you're not, you might feel lonely in that moment. You might, but you're not on, on a cosmic level. You know that you're not alone. You're participating in something or it might be, you know, something as innocuous. I get it all the time, like watching sports. You know, it's like I'm like Wimbledon is, is on at the moment. Something about that where it's just one on one and you see the turmoil that the person is going through and they just, you know, they hit one good point, you know, and they might even still lose the game, but you see what it means to them in just in that moment. And it's like, <gasps> and like, while you're feeling that, you know, it's like, this is being alive, you know, even if it's only just a tiny fleeting moment, not, it's not profound in any sort of measurable way, uh, except in your subjective experience. And then obviously there are the more profound versions of that, you know, there's the, there's the sitting on the top of the mountain, you know, there's the yeah. there's the watching the most beautiful sunset you've ever watched there's the falling in love with somebody and connecting with them for the first time obviously there's the <laughs> there's the wide variety of very intense experiences that are available to us in expanded states um but for me all of that's on a kind of continuum you know um 
of like things that make me know that I'm alive. And then the vital point, you know, as far as this conversation goes, if there is a point, I don't think it can be more vital <laughs> than that really. But, um, you know, in the context of talking about archetypal astrology and, and psychedelics, um, yeah, I think the, the point, the reason to be remotely interested in archetypal astrology, um, is that as one learns about the archetypes and the way that they interact, as one learns, uh, to, to see, um, how that's happening in the world around us, you know, you start to train your instincts, um, on something that's profoundly real, you know, that goes beyond the material. Because if we just train our instincts on a kind of materialistic paradigm, um, then we end up, you know, if we're not careful in, 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 in what can be quite a depressing and nihilistic place. Um, so you kind of need something else to train your instincts on, <laughs> especially if you're going to be doing work, um, where what you're experiencing is you know, you've got the eye mask on, you've got your, however many grams or, um, you know, milligrams of, of potent substances in your system or you're, or you're doing the breathing and you're experiencing a, basically a purely symbolic, uh, world for that time. And, and if, if you want to, uh, have good instincts, for what any of the stuff that's happening means, um, <laughs> then they need to be trained on, on something, um, real, something tangible, but something that acknowledges the fact that the universe is inherently a meaningful place. Um, and so that's, that's why I would advocate for, for archetypal astrology. People can do psychedelic work without doing astrology. People can perfectly express the archetypal dynamics, um, that are coming through them without knowing anything about their astrology. If they're, if they're on a path, you know, if they have a practice, um, if, if they have community and guidance, um, and, and, you know, access to wisdom, then astrology is not necessarily a necessity, um, for, for helping. Um, but, but what it definitely can do is, yeah, open up the symbolic world and make it intelligible, um, to, to us so that when we're then going into the symbolic realm and searching for insight, searching for wisdom, you know, we, we have naturally at our, at our disposal, good instincts, good interpretive, uh, tools, um, you know, go and screw up the integration by, <laughs> um, trying to play out all of the symbolic stuff in the purely material way. You know, that, that, that you hear the stories about people changing their career or selling their house or leaving their spouse or whatever it is. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a mistake of 
believing that we we that we have to do things in the material realm we have to make material changes and and we do have to exist in the material realm and when things are wrong in the material realm we have to make changes um but those kind of changes um whilst they can be informed um certainly by kind of a grounded interpretation of our um more intense experiences um you know they need to be co-informed <laughs> by material reality anyway i feel i feel like i'm straying beyond the vital point um but hopefully it's uh it's okay it's in there somewhere <laughs> beautiful well jonathan thank you so much for for this conversation um i'm curious if you'd like to talk for a minute or two about your services and how people can get a hold yeah. of you. You know, you're doing more, you're doing some coaching alongside the archetypal astrology work yeah. as well, right? So I was, I've been working as a coach longer than I've been practicing as an astrologer. And if, uh, in the, yeah, in the unlikely event that anyone who's listening to this, uh, remains totally closed to archetypal astrology, but, would like to work with me nonetheless as a coach <laughs> that yeah that's an option i i am perfectly happy to uh to work with people in a in a one-to-one -one way in a totally non-astrological way you know my my motto there is like you'll you'll probably find it easier to find stuff out about a person uh by simply asking them uh than you will by trying to decipher it from uh, their, their, their natal chart and transits, not always, but most of the time, especially if people want to talk. Um, so yeah, I offer one-to-one -one coaching. I, uh, I obviously offer archetypal astrology readings. Um, so that can be kind of diving into your natal chart, um, the, the way things were, the timestamp of your birth from an archetypal perspective. Um, and it can also include um, looking at your transits, so the, the kind of active dynamics for, um, for, yeah, for you kind of in in the current moment and kind of up to a year uh, in advance, probably best to not look too far in advance, stay in the moment and all that. <laughs> um, so yeah, and I, you know, I, I offer also a, a six-week uh, program of like what I call astrological coaching, which can go in a number of different directions, but generally it's a good, it's a good chance to kind of have a deep dive into your, into your chart and get familiar with every, every part of it. Um, and then we can also look at, you know, pivotal times in your life. If there's events that happen that you'd like some more insight into, we can, we can look at the transits that were happening at that time. And, um, you know, it's a good, it's a good chance, uh, to, to learn a little bit more about astrology, get more familiar with your own astrology and sort of gradually get more towards the point where you can be your own astrologer. Um, and yeah, I, in the autumn, I'm going to be running online. I think I'm going to call it like astrological campfires, you know, um, um, where people can come and you know there'll be a, a number of um talented astrologers a number of i imagine like 
total newbies, a number of kind of people who are kind of on that journey somewhere, um, where we'll we'll analyze the invitation will be for people to bring uh, kind of if they've done psychedelic sessions or breath work and they've got session reports that they'd like to look at or if people have dreams that they'd like analyzed or if there's like a specific area in life a life event that's upcoming or something that's just happening or just happened um, that uh, yeah that then, then the group will be able to kind of facilitate the the interpretation and just generally dialogue and and, and do a bit of group work around it. Um, so yeah, that's that's probably enough to to plug. If people want to know what I'm up to. They can they can friend me on Facebook. It's Jonathan Waller. Um, they can follow me on Instagram. Um, yeah, they can check out my website. I'm sure it's all in the in the show notes. Yes, we'll definitely be linking that to uh, for people to check out. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for staying up late uh, and for sharing your expertise and viewpoint and understanding with us. It's been very illuminating for me and also just thought provoking. Um, I really enjoy these sort of podcasts uh, where I, I go away with something like really to chew on and kind of digest a little bit yeah. more. So appreciate you bringing those deep topics in. I truly hope you found value and inspiration in this episode. If it struck a chord with you, I'd be incredibly grateful if you take a moment and leave the podcast a review. It's a simple cost-free way to show support and help more like-minded people discover the show. Also make sure you sign up for my newsletter at beacons.ai backslash blue magic alchemy to be the first to get updates, exclusive content, and insights delivered straight to your inbox. It's a fantastic way to stay connected and keep the cultivation of wisdom going. And when you sign up, I'll send you a free guide to using Breathwork for Integration as a way to show my gratitude for your support. Remember, it's not about the method you choose or the pace at which you travel. The vital point is to consistently show up for yourself in practice. As the saying goes, it's not the destination, but the journey that truly matters and I'm honored to accompany you on yours. Don't hesitate to reach out, connect, share your journey, successes and challenges alike. I'm just an email, DM, or review away. Thanks again for tuning in. Until our next episode, keep exploring, keep growing, and above all, keep practicing because that's the vital point.